Hello, Marvelites. You are listening to This Week in Marvel, episode number 518. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. I'm Lorraine Sin. And I am JMI. That is James Monroe Igerhart here for Thank the you. second week in a row. Yay! We it's are a blessed. I'm so happy to be here. And you're so tired because what what were you doing just a couple days ago? I was at the Tony Awards, which is basically like the Oscars for Broadway. So no, 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 no. The Tony Awards are the Tony Awards for Broadway. That is very true. The Tony Awards are the Tony Awards. It is, it is the Hell biggest yeah. awards of the Broadway season. And last year, we didn't have it for what on Broadway we're calling the before times. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Like everywhere he goes, like the before times. Yes, the before times we didn't have it for a whole year, and I got the honor of announcing the Tonys in October, and then it took all the way to this past week for the Tonys to actually happen. But James, you also were in the cast of a show that received a Tony Award. Yes, I was in the cast of the hip-hop improvisational group called Freestyle Love Supreme. Freestyle Love Supreme was presented with a special Tony Award, and it was an honor to be there. I got to also present with my friend Jeremy Pope. We got to present all the scenic lighting and costume Tony Awards for the best play, and Freestyle Love Supreme performed at the end of the Tonys. We basically did a four-minute recap of the entire show, and it was just awesome. And I remember being a kid, 16, 17, watching the Tonys. This is now my fourth Tony Awards, either presenting or performing, which is absolutely nuts. If you'd have told that high school kid that I would be doing that, he would have probably, like, fainted. (laughs) I was so excited when the producers accepted the award, because I was just like, James, I know him. Shockwave. Ooh, ooh, UTK was on the show. Yeah, uh, I was like, I know them. I know them. Yay! It was, it was, it was so funny. Like the, the amount of Marvel fans that were on that stage at that moment was just mad ridiculous. Also, this week in Marvel is the official Marvel podcast where we talk about what's happening this week in Marvel that we're excited about, whether it's games, comics, movies, TV, or whatever. We're gonna let you know about it. And this week. Oh boy, Lorraine, what's up this week? Well, we have a whole bunch of folks on the show from the behind the scenes of Marvel Studios What If later on in the show. But if you watched the episode last week, not this week, but last week, you know that Party Thor is the greatest thing since sliced ale. And if you go over to marvel.com slash must-haves, you can check out all of the Party Thor gear It's, of course, based on the Marvel Studios What If episode, What If Thor Was an Only Child? And I love him. This was just such a fun episode because I think very much in the spirit of What If, there are a lot of dark episodes, but then once in a while, you just get one of these ones that's just like, what if I threw a house party on Earth? You know, I hope my parents don't find out. I love it so much. And of course, there's a new episode out this week, which is What If Ultron One. It's now available. It's a spicy meatball. Oh, yeah. These last two are like a left hook and a right hook. And it's just boom, boom, boom. Them just going and taking big swings and having fun with it and like just leaning into the cosmic weirdness of the entire idea of what if and the watcher and all that stuff i think they've done such a tremendous job we've talked about that at length for a long time and now everybody's getting to experience it it's really really neat yeah and of course you guys can watch marvel studios what if streaming now on disney plus but you know let's talk for a second so 
we have a lot of artificial intelligence in the Marvel Universe. We have Vision and Ultron, all of Vision and Ultron's various children. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so, you know, each of these characters are very complicated and they have their own sort of feelings and personalities. Even an android can cry. But what if this was the real world? Could we have a Vision or an Ultron Ooh. in the real world? Like, how far away is that? So we thought we could maybe give someone a call. Oh, let's do this. Our wonderful producers found a woman named Jordan Harrod, who's a PhD candidate at Harvard and MIT. So basically, she has 12 brains stuffed inside her noggin. Smart, smart woman. Her brain um, she is big. Yeah. She researches machine learning and neurotechnology. She also runs a YouTube channel called Everyday AI. So on that channel, she educates people about AI and machine learning. It's really, really neat. Lorraine, why don't you fire up the twin phone? All right. Let's let's uh, give her a call. Beep, boop, 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 boop. Ring, 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 ring. Hi, this is Jordan. Hi, Jordan. It's Lorraine from This Week in Marvel. We just had some questions about AI and stuff. Is that cool? Oh, yeah. You know, we have these sort of heroes and villains like Ultron and Vision and Viv. And, you know, we were talking about how realistic is that? Like, what's the spectrum like of AI that exists in the real world right now? Yeah, that's a super interesting question because I think a lot of what we call artificial intelligence right now is actually narrow AI. So that's algorithms that have been designed to perform very specific tasks. And a lot of what we see in the Marvel films is more of an artificial general intelligence, something that kind of has its own will and can do lots of different tasks and can also kind of infer things. So a lot of the times we'll see Tony ask something like Jarvis to do a random task that actually requires several steps and a lot of different inference. And so we do have systems that work similar to that. It tends to be actually multiple algorithms combined into one system instead of one algorithm that's just kind of doing the whole thing. That's mad cool. But in terms of stuff like Vision or Ultron, we're definitely not quite there yet. Thankfully, on the Ultron side, I think we'd all prefer that probably not happen in real life. Yeah, that's probably for the best. We don't need Ultron running around in real life, truthfully. How far away do you think this is from existing in reality, a, a guy like Vision, or Synthesoid, I guess, <laughs> like Vision, or at least his artificial intelligence, you know, whatever makes him go. How far away is that? And is there a way that we'll know? Ooh, the second question is a hard question. I think that in terms of how far away, so there's already stuff like the Sophia robot by Hanson Robotics, which is supposed to be a humanoid AI robot. It only really works in specific scenarios. A lot of the time when you see it on like nighttime TV, there's been pre-programmed responses so that it looks like it's working in real time when it actually isn't. And in terms of timeline, definitely not in the next 10 years, maybe not in my lifetime or maybe towards the end of it. So like in the next 50 years or so, I think that actually one of the, the big challenges of systems like this is that even if you're looking at a system like Jarvis or something like Edith, the amount of power that you need to run algorithms that size is like considerable. And so if you were to attempt to run something like that, I'm sure there was a, a cut scene where like Tony Stark accidentally like blacked out the city grid because he ran Jarvis for like five minutes and it just like 
completely shut everything down. So I think that that's actually going to be one of the bigger barriers to having something like an AGI, just the amount of power that you'd need to power something like that would be pretty considerable. It will be hard to know when we've gotten there because there's this thing called the AI effect where every time we design a system that replicates human intelligence, we kind of move the goalpost of what intelligent means. And so if we get to a point where we're designing systems that are called AGI, we just might not call it that because our ideas on intelligence and consciousness may have changed. We'll never know! Well, (laughs) here's what I say. If there's a large blackout in the Harvard-MIT area, then we know that Jordan has made a crazy wonderful breakthrough and that we are all either in store for something cool or terribly doomed. So hopefully the first one. Yes, hopefully the first one. Thank you so much, Jordan, for coming on This Week in Marvel and teaching us a little bit about AI. Yeah, thanks for having me. Bye. Click. Well, speaking of some scary stuff, October 1st is on the way. And with it is Venom, Let There Be Carnage, coming to theaters. But you know what else Carnage is doing? He's going to be in the Infinity Comics on Marvel Unlimited. Yeah, just like X-Men Unlimited, there's a brand new Venom Carnage Infinity comic by Carla Pacheco, who's just an incredible writer. She's been doing really, really fun stuff on Spider-Woman. And Scott Hepburn is doing pencils. He penciled the recent MODOK head game series. So that's really cool. And Ian Herring, one of Marvel's most prolific and great colorists, is doing it. So it's going to be stabby, stabby, bitey, bitey, slashy, slashy, symbiote, symbiote. Slimy, Uh, slimy. Oh, yeah. yeah. Lots of slimy bits. Lots of tongues. Look, if you want long tongues, if you want tendrils if you want yeah. tentacles if you wow. want knife hands if, if you, you want, want a slime suit slime suit yeah. slime suit slime suit all that stuff from your sim boys just jagged then teeth. you can it's nothing but jagged teeth all the jagged teeth you go over to marvel unlimited read that comic and read the dozens and dozens maybe actually hundreds of comics featuring venom and carnage i have a question so think about this symbiote goo suit right but then sharp white teeth where are the teeth are the teeth made of the goo or is there just a bucket of teeth in the goo? Bucket well, the... of teeth in the goo. Bucket <laughs> of teeth in the goo. Where is it? I want to know. Well, the goo is very like floppy and gooey, but it can make itself very hard and very spiky and very pointy. Well, I was wondering, is it the goo that like once it snatches onto its host, does it make the host teeth grow and become sharp? <gasps> Is it the host teeth or is it yeah, the like goo teeth? Like if the symbiote's teeth get knocked out and then like the symbiote Ooh. is like away, when the host opens their mouth, is the teeth gone? I hate this conversation. <laughs> Moving on. All right, let's let's uh, let's keep this train rolling and talk about Marvel's Wastelanders Hawkeye because last week we aired the teaser for the show and this week we've got the full trailer. Woo! Let's hear it. Ladies and gentlemen. Let me introduce you to Hawkeye. I'm Hawkeye, and I'm a hero. Wait, why is he wearing that blindfold? He lost his sight. What? Our little, powerless, helpless Hawkeye. Give him a round of applause, friends. You're Clint's daughter, yes? Hi, Papa. It's me, Ash. Ash. I need your help, Papa. 
I need to kill someone. The auditorium was destroyed. Several students killed. Vengeance is a dirty, ugly business. It's not murder, it's justice. I don't know what you're thinking about doing at your assembly today. Not really. Now focus all that hurt and anger and hate and pain into the point of the arrow. Focus it all the way down and shoot me. Lynn Barton, you are the last Avenger. Everything you know has just been destroyed. But still, your struggle. Maybe it will take my entire life, but I will kill you. It's suicide. It's justice. You have hurt many people, Clint. Are you more healed? Are you happier? I'm doing this for you. For you to have a better world. But this world has to burn for that to happen. Be careful what you wish for. You will get it. Auckland, what did you do? Marvel's Wastelanders, Hawkeye. Starring Stephen Lang as Hawkeye. Premieres Monday, October 4th. Hear it first exclusively by subscribing to Marvel Podcasts Unlimited on Apple Podcasts or on the SXM app. And coming soon everywhere. Learn more at SiriusXM.com slash Wastelanders. I'm really excited for this. If you guys haven't listened to Marvel's Wastelanders Old Man Star-Lord yet, definitely go check that out. That was the first installment. This is the second installment. And these are super duper fun dystopia goodness. Next, we've got announced recently a new prose novel featuring one of our favorite characters, Okoye. It was announced that the New York Times bestselling author and National Book Award finalist E.B. Zaboy joins the Marvel Universe with a heartfelt novel that takes Okoye to America for the very first time. In my imagination, Okoye gets off the plane, says, nope, gets right back on the plane and goes (laughs) back to Wakanda. But I'm sure E.B. has a much better story in mind for the book Okoye to the People, which is going to be out March 1st, 2022. Everywhere books are sold. And we have another middle grade graphic novel coming from Nadia Shamas with art by Nabi H. Ali. And it's going to be Ms. Marvel stretched thin. I'm excited for this. We had a great time checking out the middle grade graphic novel that came out recently about Miles Morales. James, what is it about? So Ms. Marvel, she's having a hard time balancing schoolwork with being a good friend, being there for her family, you know, writing fanfic, and, you know, becoming a superhero. She's tired and just barely keeping control, but she's handling it. Totally. When a mysterious robot tries to infiltrate Avengers Tower, it'll be up to Miss Marvel to, again, literally, pull herself together, learn to ask for help, and fix the mess she's made before anyone gets hurt. I am very excited about this one. Yeah, me too. Definitely go check that out. I love these middle grade graphic novels. They're so cute and really enjoyable for adults and kids alike. Ms. Marvel Stretch Thin is out now and it's available wherever books are sold. So go pick it up. Yeah. On the game front this week, we just heard that Marvel's Avengers is now available on Xbox Game Pass for PC, console and cloud, which is 
pretty dang cool. Every player with an Xbox Game Pass membership can experience the full game and all the game's post-launch heroes and missions. That includes the four-story campaigns that showcase the various new heroes, as well as the Avengers Initiative, all that stuff, including, yes, that's right, Black Panther and the War for Wakanda expansion. So, Get up on that if you have Xbox Game Pass. Yeah, Marvel's Avengers, play it. All right, got to talk about some digital collectibles because our pals over on Vivi have some new stuff that they just put up, and I'm really bummed that I missed it, although I can go into the marketplace and get it. This past weekend, Throg was available Ah. on Vivi. Man. I honestly have not dipped my toe into the Vivi pool yet, and I was like, damn it, this got me. I gotta go. Yeah, there's a couple of different versions of the Throg digital statue. He looks really cool. One of the fun things about it, whenever you get one of these digital collectibles from Vivi, there's also an AR component. So you can then take that statue and put it into your real world and take a picture with it. So like I have a great picture of a Sam Wilson Captain America statue I got from Vivi and a Spider-Man one I got. And it's it's really neat. So I'm bummed I missed this. But anybody else out there, make sure you don't miss them. There's more coming from Marvel and Vivi all the time. Ryan, where's the marketplace? Where can people get reminders? What should they do? Download the app? Yeah, download the Vivi app. Follow Vivi underscore official on Twitter and log in. There's the digital collectibles of comics or statues or, or plenty more. Get them in there. And uh, even if you miss the initial drop, there's always time to get them on the marketplace afterwards from other users. Speaking of comic books, we just relaunched Marvel Unlimited, supercharged with over 29,000 digital comics, unlimited downloads. So you can check out the all new, all different Marvel Unlimited app today. Go to marvel.com slash unlimited to get started. Automatic renewal and other terms apply. There's tons of stuff to check out in there. Yeah, there's a bunch of new stuff joining Unlimited this week, but also look out for those exclusive titles. You know, like we mentioned, Venom Carnage, It's Jeff, X-Men Unlimited. There's all kinds of great stuff that is exclusively over on Marvel Unlimited. Plus, of course, all of the wonderful thousands of digital comics that come out in comic stores originally. So definitely go and check those out. All right, it is time for the interview portion of the show, and we have a triple threat of amazing interviews to talk about this week. We have three people who have done amazing work behind the scenes for Marvel Studios' What If. Lorraine, who's up first? First up, we have got head writer and EP of Marvel Studios' What If, A.C. Bradley. She was so great to talk to. We chatted about how they came up with ideas for the episodes and what it was like to play in the sandbox of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It sounded like a lot of fun. So you know what? Let's take a listen. Hey, AC. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Oh my gosh, it's our absolute pleasure to have you. Ryan and I are huge What If fans from the comic series. We're so thrilled that it is now part of the MCU. What is your Marvel origin story? What was your first connection with the Marvel Universe, the Marvel stories? As a kid, I grew up in the Bronx, New York. I'm first generation American. And I grew up in like the real like Irish working class neighborhoods. My older boy cousins who kind of defined my interests were all into Star Wars and Indiana Jones and sports, not so much comic books. I was probably the only eighth grader who was reading Tom Clancy novels because they were. And I was like, well, this is good. 
I fell in love with Marvel probably around the same time a lot of people did. I was about 22, 23. I had my first assistant job in LA, which means you're working about 12 to 14 hours and you're trying to carve out time to write and you're trying to figure out how to write when everyone else is so good around you and you have the world's worst imposter syndrome. And I got a text being like, do you feel like going to see Iron Man? And I was like, I should write. I need to be writing. I need to be writing. It's the whole reason I'm working these crazy hours. It's the whole reason I went to film school. I need to be writing. I need to be writing. And I went, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll meet you at the arc light. And I come out of Iron Man going, that's what I want to write. I had never seen an action movie with so much character in it. I had never seen a genre movie that I felt seen, although I'm far from a billionaire's kid and I'm not a tech genius, but I'm very much an imperfect person. And I just felt like these are the stories I want to tell that that movie can resonate with someone like me. It's pretty powerful. Everyone remembers the last three words of Iron Man, which is, I am Iron Man. But the line right before that is, I'm not the hero type. And that was the, okay, this is what I want to write. These are the characters I want to write. But I actually have to thank Marvel for kind of starting my career in a very roundabout way. You get this incredible opportunity to play in the Marvel sandbox in a way I just don't think anybody else has ever been given license to do. They're like, you can have any character you want, any franchise, any time, any storyline. You can mess with people's stories. I mean... That's kind of like a, a really, really rare situation. Were you given any parameters and what were you first attracted to in that sandbox? When I was brought into the room and told them I'd do what if, my first question was, okay, who's the character? Who am I playing with? Is it what if Captain Marvel? Is it? And Brad went, no, it's all of them. And I went, oh. I was like, this makes me feel that you're trusting me in a level that I'm actually quite surprised at. When it came to areas that were off limits, the only parameters were obviously don't do anything we're planning to do in the movies or other TV shows, which meant I walked into Endgame so much my first three months that I had bruises. They ended up having me see a tech screening of it in January before the movie came out because I kept pitching parts of it. And Victoria very nicely said in an animatic review once, we're just kind of destroying the movie for her because she knows everything that's going to happen <laughs> by accident. Let her see it and enjoy it. And I thank her for that because I loved it. It was actually me and the other writer on the show, Matthew Chauncey, and we were invited to a tech screening. A tech screening is basically the technical screening. It's about, I think there's 20 other people in a very small theater who are watching it because they work on it. And the effects weren't done, and it wasn't fully edited, it wasn't color corrected, so they're watching it to take notes and to figure out how to bring this amazing movie to the finish line. And then there's me and Matt, and we're sitting there, and obviously everyone else in this theater has read the scripts. They've been part of this movie since the last three years. So I'm trying to be cool. Like, I am cool girl. I am just gonna like sit back and relax. I'm, I'm studying the movie. I have to know this for my job. And spoiler, Black Widow passes away. <laughs> and I look over at Matt and he is just crying. <laughs> and I went, dude, we're in with the cool kids. Be cool. And he went, How, what is wrong with you? And by, of course, by the time Iron Man, <laughs> I was crying too. So 
you finally see Endgame. You remain as cool as possible. When you walked out of that meeting, what were you guys like, oh, okay, who can we, what action figures do we get to play with? When we started figuring out the show, early on I knew a couple of things. We had to have a couple of basic rules, which is not every episode can turn into the Avengers. Let's focus on one or two characters per episode. Let's find the heart behind the hero. My favorite thing to do, because there is such a huge role to play with, and the way Marvel differs from other big IP properties is that it's all about character. It's 500 characters and how we relate to them. So basically you take one and you try and figure out what makes them tick. Early on, it was like, okay, we're going to spread out the love as much as possible. We had multiple Iron Man ideas. There's parts of Iron Man I really want to explore. We probably could have done 17 episodes all about T'Challa. We wanted to make sure fans felt that their favorite characters are appearing somewhere in this pantheon. From there, it was a mixture of what genres do we want to play with and what character story do we want to tell. And that's kind of how we approached every episode. I love that. We were talking to Brian Andrews, the director of the show, and he was saying how there were so many ideas early on, throwing them at Kevin and Lewis and Victoria and like 20 some odd ideas. And it was like a struggle because there were so many possibilities. And I, that's part of what I love about what if as a concept, especially within the Marvel stories, there's so many ripe fruit to like pluck from the tree it's almost maddening as you're talking about. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I sat down at my computer to like kind of make them make sense, like make a sales document. And I threw in a couple of extra and the sales doc worked. And then we had to have them do a ranking system. And from there we got to about 14. And then it was easier because there was a couple of episodes where it's like, well, we can't have two Captain America centric episodes or Let's make sure we have enough comedy in here that we're not, you know, <laughs> Wednesday doesn't become the most depressing day of the week for everyone. What ifs are epically known for being like tragic stories. We want to keep a nice balance. So there was a lot to play with and pull from. I imagine you had to do a ton of research into like the already trod road in the MCU, but obviously you're bringing in a new character with the Watcher and you're also telling all of these stories from different twists and point of views, were there any comics that inspired you, even though you weren't necessarily pulling directly from them or just, you know, stuff from out in the world, films, shows, Shakespeare, maybe? So we did, usually we found a touchstone. When you're television writing and you're trying to express a big idea quickly, finding things that we can all kind of grapple onto. When it came to the comic books and pulling from them, one image I pulled early on, which was, I forget which issue it's from, but it's a giant watcher looming over, I think, Reed Richards. And I just love that, like, larger-than-life presence. As far as pulling directly, directly from a comic book, Marvel Zombies, which is not a what-if run, but we wanted to do a zombie episode, and what better place to <laughs> pull inspiration than the classic Marvel Zombies run. I hope fans enjoy it. We did make some big changes. But then we try to stay true to some of the plot lines, especially in the first series that we loved. And again, some of the images that we loved. What a wonderful world. Thank you so much for talking with us. I honestly wish we could just 
hang out all day because you're fascinating and the show is so wonderful. But we will just say thank you so much for your time and everybody watch Marvel Studios What If. Ugh, so good. Thank you for having me. I hope everyone enjoys it. It was a real pleasure to write the show. It was it was great. I don't think there's going to be a time in my life where I'm basically handed the coolest toys in the universe and told to go. And I felt like a kid playing Legos, to be honest with you, <laughs> building whatever I want, doing whatever I want for nearly two years. All right, once again, big thanks to AC, the head writer and executive producer for Marvel Studios. What if she is a ding dang delight? Her work on the show has been tremendous. Yes. But we have more interviews this week about Marvel Studios. What if? We have Stefan Frank, who is the animation supervisor of Marvel Studios. What if? And this is really wonderful. He grew up in Europe, but his parents owned a art supply and comic book store. Wow. And so he really grew up with this. And so it was really fun to hear somebody who is sort of a lifelong fan of this, getting to bring his animation skills into the MCU officially. Definitely enjoy Stefan right now. Hello, welcome to the show. Hey, who are you? Very nice to, to be here. Oh, it's so lovely to have you. Now, what is your Marvel origin story? What was the first way you encountered Marvel comics or Marvel characters? It was very early for me because my parents, uh, you know, grew up in France and my parents had this store that sold comics and all sorts of books and art supply, back to school supplies, all that stuff. So. Literally, when I was eight years old, I discovered comics and that we had everything there. We had, you know, the, the European comics, we had the American comics, you know, translated in French and stuff. And so I fell in love immediately with the Marvel characters. You go through different phases and different characters mean different things to you. So at some point you are Peter Parker, etc. So it goes all the way back to that. Did you have a particular character that you were really drawn to when you were growing up? Yeah, I mean, like, Spider-Man really was me when I was 10, you know? Like, I had those, like, daydream fantasy, like, at, you know, lunchtime at school, you know, that, like, Doc Ock would be attacking the school. I would have no choice but to kind of reveal everybody that I was, in fact, Spider-Man, you know? You know, so I love those characters. I also loved the more kind of mentor kind of father figure characters, you know? For whatever reason, I had this weird idea that I would grow up to become like a Doctor Strange type dude, which is not the case at all. But I, I don't know if it was like the artist alone doing his weird thing in his studio slash Sanctum Sanctorum, whatever. That spoke to me. But really like all those all those characters in their own ways and through different phases kind of meant something specific to me and, you know, found different meanings in it. It's kind of amazing that comics ended up sort of being in your family line. You're carrying on the tradition. You're an incredible artist in your own right. And now you're the animation supervisor for Marvel Studios. What if, what was the origin story of working with Marvel Studios on the series? You know, I'll bridge your previous question with this one, because part of the origin story was that also at that store, my parents also sold like super eight millimeter film. So, you know, they had like little clips of, you know, the jungle book or whatever, you know? And so 
for me, it was like reading the Marvel books and playing like the jungle, but you know, it's just like, how do I mix those two art forms together? And that's always been my dream, you know, but interestingly enough, that's not something that we really did in animation until fairly recently. So I've been wanting to do superhero stuff in animation for a long time. That was not what I would call animation does superheroes, if you know what I mean, but it would be like an earnest, genuine take on the genre that just happens to be animated. And so, you know, I get the call, you know, to come and visit and meet, you know, with, with Brian, who I've known for a long time. And we've shared that sort of ambition for a long time to do these types of stories in animation. This looked to me like the, the project had been sort of hoping to sort of get involved with my entire career. Again, since the time that I was eight years old, trying to combine animation and comics in the way that I thought was exciting with the power of the art form of animation in the service of those stories and those characters. What a perfect project for you to come together with, kind of a childhood dream come true. For anyone who's not familiar with the animation process, what does an animation supervisor do on a series like What If? So the thing that people don't necessarily understand is the specificity of the word animators, because we, you know, we work in animation. So to a degree, everybody's an animator, even in the public's eye, but animators per se, it's a very specific thing. And it's the, we start by recording the, the actors who have in this case already performed these characters in the live action movies. So they know these characters really well. And they, they basically, they define what the performance, the acting performance is going to be. But that performance at that point is only vocal and you still need the visual half of the performance. And so that's what the animators do specifically, which is they are actors. I used to say with a pencil, now it's also with a computer, of course, but they're actors who, instead of performing it with their own bodies, they're kind of manifesting it through the, the art form. So you start with the voice track from the actor and then you have to receive that performance and understand it, you know, is the actor being, I mean, you know, the character at that moment being earnest, are they being sarcastic? Do they mean what they say? You know, are they looking at you straight when they're saying it or are they actually looking away with shifty eyes? You know, you know all that, all the visual, the physical, the body language, you know, a part of an acting performance. So that's what the animators do. And my job as the animation supervisor is to work with all the animators on all those shots to make sure that the acting choices are the correct ones, that the energy levels is also right. Because I mean, all those characters have their own vibe and their own energy. You know, some of them, you know, they don't deliver a joke in the same way. Some are more sarcastic, some are more kind of good natured and earnest and kind of, you know, so making sure that we're staying true to the character, we're staying true to the scene and what the acting choices are in the moment. And then because we are creating this out of a blank piece of paper or a blank screen, you know, because, you know, in life, everybody knows how to walk. Like when you're an actor and you're deciding, you know, okay, I'm going to walk from A to B. There's a lot that goes into that walk, but the basic of walking, you know how to do this, you know what I mean? But in animation, everything is being created from scratch. So there's also a layer of, is this movement look credible? Does it look natural? There's a technical motion analysis kind of aspect as much as there's an acting choices kind of aspect. You have such sort of a unique challenge with this, especially because you have an, all of these prior films, tens of Marvel Cinematic Universe films to sort of look back and reference. And you can see the actors and the locations to some extent, and then also creating something totally new. What sort of pieces and parts are you looking at from the original MCU films to sort of fill out 
locations, people, all of the nouns <laughs> that exist sort of in the Marvel universe. So that lives at both ends of the sort of acting slash animation spectrum, because on the one hand, you have the action scenes that, you know, are amazing in the all the old MCU movies. And I mean, quite honestly, you know, when I first saw those movies, when I was not involved in any of it yet, just as a fan, for the first time watching those movies, I felt like I was seeing physical action, superhero action in a way that I didn't think I would ever see on a movie screen. You know, I thought it was just like a comic book coming to life, you know. And so they did that in live action. So for us in animation, you know, we had to, at the very least, match that. And so because the genre of superhero in animation is a new thing, really, at this level of execution, it's a new challenge for animators to, you know, it pushes the envelope in terms of the specificity of the movement, the, the power of it, the specificity of the fighting styles, all that stuff. So all that physical action that has to be convincing, because if it's not convincing, then you're not feeling it, then you're not in the show, you know, but also how specific it is in the movie, because every character has their own fighting style. And, you know, so recapturing all this in animation and representing it through our own medium was, of course, like one of the, the important challenges of the show. And then, as you said, on the other side, these actors have performed, and these characters really live now, that there's an established body of work. And um, in shots that are completely not physical, for instance, in the Doctor Strange episode, you know, there's this very, very subtle series of sequences when he's in the car with Christine and they're having this conversation that has so many layers of subtlety because, you know, there's the stuff first he doesn't want to say, and then, you know, Maybe he wants to say it, but he knows that it's, you know, the universe won't let him say it and there's no point saying it because she won't understand, you know, all those different layers and trying to convey that in the animation in the way that is born out of the actor's performance. So we have these two poles, the very sort of internal kind of character stuff and the broad physical action and both of them have their own challenges and they're just uh, really amazing to kind of sink your teeth into. I mean, there's so much in the series to really sink your teeth into. And of course, when the show was first announced, I think everyone was so excited to see what that meant. What does Marvel Studios animation mean? What is the look? What is the style? As you all were putting together the series, deciding on that overall aesthetic, what were some of your inspirations or maybe previous artists or styles that you just looked to? So there was really three main inspirations that came into this because first there was the comics because the DNA of these characters and worlds are in the comics and also because we're in the graphic medium. So there's obviously like a, a lot of this that we want to be able to receive and build from. But then of course, the, all our stories are built from the MCU. They're born in there from like, even our, all our stories are like fork the roads moment from the MCU. Right. So the cinema of it is something we're really connecting with and all of us on the show, as much as we are fans of comics and, and animation, everything, you know, we're huge fans of cinema. That's what's fun. It's just unlike the live action movies, as you've seen, our episodes kind of connect with different movie genres. So each genre has its own style of storytelling. So th those are the two basic elements that go into the mix, the comics and cinema. But then for our art form, we needed to find a way to kind of combine this in a way that was new and exciting and like the way I think of it is something that would be as new on the outside as it is new on the inside you know meaning that 
a look that really doesn't have any limitation so that the, you know we really offer something appealing and powerful but also something that would signal that this is something you've not seen before and so the element that was brought in was classic illustration from people like jc Leindecker, who bring like a classic illustration style that is broad and appealing but also very elegant sophisticated and that kind of elevates the overall presentation and unifies it in a way that works great for animation because of its boldness and appeal but also that brings the level of sophistication that you kind of need and tonal range too because we go from comedy to heavy drama and action and everything in between and so that, that was really like the visual key that kind of unified everything and kind of unlocked those doors. So I've heard that you guys use cell shading. Could you talk a little bit about what that is and why you decided on using that as part of the process? We have this mix of 2D and 3D animation. And like one of the, to me, the big visual success of the series is that people are not quite able to see where one stops and the other one begins. And cell shading, meaning that even our, the stuff that we do that is CG, does look like it is 2D. So it doesn't look like a, you know, like the kind of volumetric kind of rendering that you would see uh, in the most CG movie, but it would have the warmth and appeal of a drawing, but with all the possibilities that CG brings you, which is like being able to move around everything and, you know, and carry around complex costumes and, and props and, and stuff like that. So we have all the flexibility, I want to say, of, of CGI but with an aesthetic that has the warmth and appeal of a drawing, which also speaks to the DNA of, of these characters. Now, I want to circle back to something you were saying, because you sort of do have this unique opportunity that every episode is a different, literally a different world, essentially a different reality. It's a completely different storytelling, you know, from the darkness of Doctor Strange to Party Thor to murder mystery, you kind of have a little bit of everything. Were there any particular episodes that you really loved playing with the animation genre? I mean, all of them in, in their own ways. For instance, I really love doing the, the first episode with Peggy, you know, because it's a period piece. And with the Linedecker style, it also lends itself so well to this period vibe. And so there's something so incredibly tasteful and appealing to that episode that, you know, it was really just visually uh, something that was really uh, delicious, you know. But um, then you go to zombies, you know, and, I, you know, I've always loved zombies, you know. I, like one of the movies that I saw when I was a kid had animated zombies in it, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do animation. And again, typically is not something that the industry would be interested in us doing, you know, until places like Disney Plus and so on and so forth. So the zombie episode, obviously, to me, it was just incredible, you know, to be able to do that and and, uh, and finding the right aesthetic distance that lets you connect with everything and connect with each and every kind of different tone level that we wanted to, where the comedy lands, where the drama, you really feel it, and where the action and suspense, you also kind of are in it. So yeah, so I mean, that, that gives you the range, you know, like for me, um, zombie was definitely something <laughs> that was awesome. You know? you know, there's so many sort of wonderful cultural touchstones in these episodes. Like I think of the hand on the window in the zombie mm. episode, you know, that classic that sort shot. of horror yeah. trope. Yeah. And 
how much of those things are scripted and how much do you find, you know, small ways to play within the animation and, you know, find moments to kind of add something for fun? To me, it's not an either or. It's it's the things kind of work together because our episodes are like half an hour and they move fast and you kind of have to know where you're going. You know what I mean? So all these episodes have a very strong script to begin with. And then as you, of course, start performing, because like to me, once you're past, you know, the basic concept of something and you, okay, you have the pitch. All right. Okay. Everything after that is a different layer of performance, you know, writing the script is a performance. And then, you know, the storyboarding, then you're, you know, the directing comes in and the film language, and that's also a voice that comes in and that performs. And then animation, and then the voice actors, of course, obviously that's a performance. And then the animators, like we were saying earlier, are adding a visual performance to that vocal performance in the context of this filmmaking performance, in the context of this story, you know? So it's just to me layers upon layers upon layers of performance that built on each other. And what's really interesting to me, what I've noticed, you know, over the years, you know, is that you never know which point a joke, where it will come alive in this performing process. Sometimes it always was there, you know, hilarious in the script. And sometimes you know it's a joke that will land when you put the sound effects on it. And everything before that is a leap of faith because you know that, yeah, we know what we're doing and we're doing everything right, but we know it will truly come alive when this cowbell comes in. You know what I mean? It's just like, so it's, it's a multidimensional process of layers of performance built on each other. And what was really great with this process is that the team, everybody has this holistic approach, which is like, all right, here's my thing here, but how does it work? How does it do justice to what you've done before me? And how does it serve what is the next layer that's coming after me? So that we're all working towards this final performance where everything kind of lands. Well, what a beautiful way to wrap things up. It all takes teamwork and lots of years of effort and everything and beyond. And also congratulations on bringing to fruition this thing that you've been ready to do since childhood. That's just the coolest thing and love the show. It's absolutely phenomenal. Thank you so much. Thank you to Stefan Frank, the Marvel Studios What If Animation Supervisor for coming on the show and Finishing up our trifecta of amazing conversations this week, we have Laura Cartman, Marvel Studios' What If composer. What are we talking about with Laura? This was so fun. Laura has been a composer in Hollywood for many, many years, wildly experienced on many films and things that you know and love. But she talks a little bit about just how she sort of took the music that existed in the Marvel Universe and reverse engineered it into something completely new that spoke to the new theme in this different universe. It's really cool. And also she has gotten her son, who is 10 years old, into the Marvel Cinematic Universe in a big way. So we were bonding over good old fashioned fandom. Take a listen to Laura Cartman right now. Laura, welcome to This Week in Marvel. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you guys today? Even better now, we're asking ourselves, what if we talked about all things what if? What is your Marvel origin story? What was the first sort of connection point you had with the Marvel Universe, whether it was, you know, under ruse or (laughs) 
comics or or the MCU. You know what? I'm going to tell you the real truth. You ready? Uh-huh. So I have a, a friend who works there and she started inviting me to screenings. And I wasn't like, I mean, I always enjoyed Marvel movies, but I wasn't like a crazy fanatic, you know, but I got dropped into them. And I think the first one I got dropped into was maybe like Civil War, one of those. And I didn't understand anything about what was going on it was like i landed on an alien planet but i you know i really appreciated the richness of the storytelling and the next one i saw i think was maybe it was dr strange and it was like oh my god this is cool like dr strange i think was a way in for me even more than the avengers stuff but then I started getting into the Avengers stuff. Like I said, just really appreciating the storytelling. And of course, you know, if you love film, you know, it's kind of the height of it right now, I think. So I started getting deeper into it and really started enjoying it. And then I was fortunate enough to get hired on this show. And then, of course, I had to go to real Marvel school because you can't do what if if you don't get it. Right. Because you have to get what it is in order to figure out the twists and the turns of it. So I went to Marvel school and now I'm totally deep in it. And I'm pleased to say that my son, who is a Star Wars fanatic, this weekend we started watching a bunch of the films and I think he's making his way over to our side of the uh, world here. So I probably saw six movies this weekend. You know, it was really nuts. So we saw the Iron Man and couple Captain Americas and you know we had a lot of fun how old is he he's 10 ah perfect age that's wonderful perfect age right we get him sucked in then right what is that first conversation like with Marvel Studios to come on board for this project that really does span the breadth of the the films and the characters you know it's funny because it first felt like when I started writing music for video games and and I wasn't a gamer I sort of had to figure out how I could bring what I do into this world well. And of course, the music for Marvel movies is very rich and very orchestral. So, I mean, my background musically worked, but I think what Marvel was looking for was somebody who was really versatile because as you see already from seeing, you know, you have to be able to cover a lot of bases. We had an epic love story. We had a war movie. You know, we had it, you know, these half hour bits of really diverse storytelling. So I think that that was my first kind of way in. I think that's why they were interested in me because I do have a rich career as a musical storyteller. And and I think I do have a lot of expertise in that. But also, you know, I am a newly minted fan. So I think that helped. And I've become even more of one the deeper and deeper I've gotten into the world. That's how we get you. You know, it is such a rich world. The more that you get into it, the deeper you fall in love with it. And you have such an interesting sort of unique opportunity and challenge with this because each episode is a different show almost, right? It's a completely different story. So you have to have sort of, I would assume, some themes that you can carry through shows. But then how do you sort of pull inspiration for different episodes and keep it also sort of in the same world? Well, I mean, you have the watcher, right? And the watcher is there all the time looking over. And so his theme we introduce as in the main title sequence. And then that theme, I have to say, becomes an anchor 
which is really, really helpful. And then we have, of course, the various characters who have their musical signatures. Those are important. Those are written by the composers. And that's been kind of fun to dive into their music and figure out what works for our series and how we can take what they've done and turn it inside out and upside down and make it work and just present it when we need to present it in a straightforward way for, you know, Captain America appears, you want to hear that theme, but what do you do for Captain Carter? You know, so every episode is a puzzle that needs to be figured out. You know, what's the zombie music? What does it sound like? There's this really, really cool moment in episode five where the Avengers appear and they're they're kind of in the shadows and, you know, you think that they're coming to rescue the situation, their theme appears. And then literally I take the recorded music and I reverse it, like digitally reverse it so that when you see their zombies, you know, it's like going backwards and that way that it goes, you know, kind of sucks in again. And that's a perfect example of the kind of thing that you've got to figure out for every episode. Like, what's the story? How does it relate to the films that it's referencing? And then where does it go askew? You know, and how do you reflect that musically? That's the challenge and the fun and the ride of the series. That's what makes it fun. You went into your Marvel school. What are some of the scenes or the moments that really inspired you to start thinking about, ooh, things I'd want to maybe sprinkle in or evoke as you're going through these similar stories? You know, one of the very first things we talked about was Captain Carter in episode 101. I mean, how is she literally reflective of Captain America, but yet she's a she and she's Peggy, who's a character that we know in a whole other context, you know? So what happens when you drop her into this story? And what I did was take the Captain America theme and literally do a mirror image of it. So when it goes up, Captain Carter's theme goes down. And when Captain America goes down, Captain Carter goes up. So, you know, it's like those little touches, you know, in 102, it was a real mashup of, you know, Wakanda and Guardians of the Galaxy. So that's like taking some of those those fantastic African sounds that Ludwig recorded for Wakanda and combining them with an orchestral version of the Guardians of the Galaxy theme. And that's really just figuring that stuff out and saying, okay, what can we do here? What's going to give, you know, the fans what they need? And then how do we also proceed with our storytelling? Because, you know, once you get into an episode of What If, I believe that it becomes its own thing. Like you get the twist and it's like, oh, no, that's mind blowing. And, you know, this happens and that happens. But then you're in it. You know what I mean? It's not constantly referencing the movies. They're characters that we love and that we recognize and that behave certain ways that we know that they will because of what we've seen of them in the MCU. But they're also taking on a different um, perspective in our show. I think that's right. Yeah. I mean, there's so much sort of like math to it, right? Yeah. I mean, really. And the other sort of flip side of that is... I always think that people don't realize how much of an actor music is within the story. When somebody doesn't have the lines to tell you how they're feeling, they could look out at a sunrise and the music will tell you what they're thinking about or how they feel. Do you have any scenes in the series that you really enjoyed getting to be a part of that acting moment? It's so funny. Composers, we have this kind of packed 
with the audience. It continually fascinates me, and I'm so glad for it, where why does music work with film or animation or, or television or games? You know, why does it work? It's because there's some way in which we need it. There's some way in which the two dimensionality of what's going on needs to be kind of supported. And I think at this point, it's become such a part of the language that in order to feel the full extent of what it is to be your hero or to love somebody completely or to put yourself in in real danger for the sake of others. Visuals and acting, of course, do 90% of it or 99% of it, but there is something sort of ineffable that music does that just takes it to that amazing, amazing place. And there are lots of moments in What If... I wrote a love theme for Peggy and Steve in, in 101, you know, a beautiful little oboe theme. And there's a lot of stuff going on in these in the movies and in this show that has nothing to do with um, fighting and, and heroics, but just really beautiful interpersonal moments that I'm privileged to be able to support musically. Thinking about the format, especially animation and this sort of close to a half hour format, is composing for Marvel Studios What If?, different in any way from any of the processes for maybe a longer show or a movie or an opera or any other sort of interactive piece? You know, I would like to say yes, but it isn't. It feels the same. And these episodes, even though they're only a half hour long, feel juicy to me. And it's so funny because I went through and did the soundtrack yesterday for the last three episodes. And like, there's a ton of music in each of these episodes. So they're, you know, a substantial effort musically and everything is, you know, recorded and orchestra and it's a big deal. So no, it doesn't feel different. And the fact that it's animated, I think it allows the filmmakers to do things that they might not be able to do in live action, but it doesn't really affect me because like this show and and maybe I'm wrong and maybe Brad and Brian would would disagree with me and Kevin, but they feel like movies to me. And and the animation, I mean, obviously I've noticed it as it evolves, you know, because I sometimes get very early cuts where things are not clear, but they're people to me. They're just, you know, they're, they are the people. I don't know. And it's not like scoring like kids animation where, you know, you're trying to figure out dancing with the picture in a different kind of way. This is sophisticated. The animation is more of a kind of a living comic book as I see it rather than animated like a Saturday morning cartoon, you know? I love that so much also because Ryan and I are potentially the biggest comic fans on the planet. Now, I have to ask you one last question before we go, which is an extremely music nerdy question. In the spirit of like John Williams' major fifths in the Star Wars theme, is there a specific interval that belongs to the Watcher or belongs to the What If series? There is, and thank you for that. Look, the Watcher is a mysterious person. So whereas you talk about John Williams kind of making like the Superman theme is a, is a leap of a major seventh, like this feeling like you're taking off into the air, literally. The Watcher is a leap of a minor sixth, right? And so it falls down, but you feel that sense of suspension, but lack of clarity, right? We're not really sure what the deal is with this person. It never really settles. 
it doesn't ever really reach the tonic again. It doesn't ever come to the musical home. And I am a firm believer, and I guess really it's the John Williams School of Main Titles, of trying to embed something of the character into the music. So it's how do you use intervals to write themes? And, you know, themes are all about intervals and about rhythm, right? If you hear pa 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 pa, you know immediately it's Beethoven's fifth just from the rhythm, right? So it's really finding this combination of what people can recognize and what those intervals mean. And the watcher is, I would say, the use of the minor six rising up to the minor seventh and down to the dominant, it's not ever settles. You don't know what he's doing. Yeah. I love it because it kind of does end on a question just like the title, doesn't it? That's what it's supposed to do, where you, you never quite, you don't know what the second half of the sentence is. Oh, I have chills. Oh, my gosh. Well, thank you so much for talking with us and giving us your time. Of course, everyone, go watch Marvel Studios' What If, now streaming only on Disney+, Plus because it is the best. Thank you, Laura, for a wonderful, insightful interview. I was really, really interested in this, being a music person myself. Really, really cool. Yeah. Time for our question of the week. We are getting ready for next week's interview, which is going to be with author Mackenzie Lee. She wrote the book Gamora and Nebula, Sisters in Arms. So with that in mind, I think our question of the week for next week is going to be, who are your favorite siblings in the Marvel Universe? I've got a lot to choose from. A lot of families in the Marvel sphere. Lorraine, James, anyone I mean, come it, to mind? It feels too easy to choose the twins, Scarlet Witch and her Quicksilver brother. I would say Laura and Gabby, yeah. for me, probably my favorite so siblings. I guess I'll go with the two that I love to hate, <laughs> Cyclops and the Havoc. <laughs> so, oh, boy. I, there's something about... You know, you want to slap your brother. And there's something about being able to shoot him with your powers and, just, and it doesn't affect him. It just pisses me off. It's like, I can blast a whole hole through a mountain, but if I shoot you, it doesn't work. It just... There are so many to choose from. So when you know who you know, you can tweet us your answers using hashtag This Week in Marvel. You can email them to twimpodcast at marvel.com. Or you could send us a message on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash this week in Marvel. And uh, please make sure to tell us if it is okay to read on the show because we like to read them on the show like we're about to do right now. I've seen a bunch of tweets coming to James or Lorraine or or myself for the show, but they're not always tagged with This Week in Marvel. Please make sure to tag them with This Week in Marvel so our producers can find them because sometimes we get a lot of tweets, the three of us. So sometimes we miss them or they sort of like go away before we can grab them and, and share them with the group. So always tag them with the hashtag. That helps us a ton. All right. With that in mind, our question of the week last week was, what is your favorite episode so far of Marvel Studios? What if? And answering first is Dave DeSilva at Dave underscore DSG, who says, my favorite episode of Marvel Studios What If is the one with Captain Carter. After watching it, I need a live action movie of her. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. The next is from Christine Bitsy at Reclaiming Chris. I can't decide between T'Challa as Star-Lord and who killed the Avengers. Seeing Nick Fury's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad week <laughs> showcased was perfection. I agree. I agree, Christine. Oh, well done, Christine. That is a great That's way a to phrase that. That was really, really good. All right. Next up, we have Ronnie Obenhouse at Ronnie Obenhouse, which says the Doctor Strange episode, the fact that he was aware of the Watcher was 
awesome and a testament to how connected to the multiverse he is. Oh, I love that episode visually. It's just, I think my favorite one look-wise is so good. Anlael James at Anlael James says, What if Doctor Strange lost his heart instead of his hands? I am an absolute Doctor Strange fan, but nothing could prepare me for how beautifully depressing that episode was about to be. I have no other description for it other than amazing. Ugh. When he mm. encounters all the beasts, mm. yes, mm. 100%. Oh, my gosh. I'm a little surprised, to be honest, of how, not surprised in a bad way, but like delighted and surprised how many people are choosing the Doctor Strange yeah. episode. It's great. Next up, we have Dan Donnelly at Head Body Master, which says, so far, my favorite episode of What If is What If Zombies. The level of violence and zombified interpretations of characters were very cool. And that twist ending was incredible. Oh, I love this episode. It was just like the best kind of scary where it's like funny, but also freaky and oh, the best. This next one is a little bit of a spoiler coming from Carlito Lee at Tila Vision, who says... I was going to say Marvel Zombies, but then I remembered episode three. I gotta say, Hank taking the team out before they became a team is still the top episode. Mm -hmm. Like Ryan just said, this also is a little bit of a spoiler. Emily Robeson at Emily Robeson. For me, it has to be, what if Killmonger rescued Tony Stark? I got chills when Angela Bassett said, for T'Challa, I had to pause before I could move on. Also, reminded why I love Killmonger and Michael B. Jordan. Oh my gosh. I have to say this moment, though, hit me in the feels real hard. And from Josue Delgado at X Vanguard Omega X, I absolutely love the Party Throw episode. Everything I would look for in a What If episode could be found in it. How the characters turned out different, the effect on the universe, and how the other characters react. Ugh, it makes you ponder. LOL. There's so much joy in that episode. There's so much joy. The greatest. Next up, we have Miss Thing at Aquarian by INFJ, which says, definitely episode seven. Love the 90s teen house party vibes. <laughs> it was like eating a whole sheet cake by yourself in one sitting in a good way. <laughs> 10 out of 10. Man, I loved it, too. It definitely had that clean up. My parents are coming home style movie. <laughs> it was so good. We have a Facebook message from Joel Hancock. And he says, hey, guys, just want to say I'm a new fan to the podcast and I absolutely love listening to you guys. My favorite episode of What If would have to definitely be the zombie episodes. I can't get over Ant-Man as a head and all his amazing <laughs> jokes. I also want to say I recently watched Marvel Studios' Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. It is my second favorite Marvel film under Marvel Studios' Thor Ragnarok, and I'm going to take my wife to see it. As I told her, it's 100% worth seeing it with all the amazing fight scenes. And given my Asian background, it's great to see diversity in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Oh, uh, heck yeah. I'm so pumped that people are still getting out there, going to see the film. It's so good. Go check it out in theaters now. All right, next up, we've got a Facebook message from Dustin Radcliffe, which says... Hey there, it's your friendly neighborhood Spidey fan. Great show as always this week. It was a delight to meet James, a.k.a. JMI, for the first time. So welcome back. I've only been listening to the show for a short while, but I assure you Lorraine and Ryan have been just as vile as always. Winky, <laughs> wink. In all seriousness, though, they've been fantastic. This Week in Marvel is my go-to for everything Marvel. 
I've never been so caught up, so thank you. And I've been loving the recent interviews with the cast and crew members of Marvel Studios Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings, as well as Marvel Studios What If. And then just everything else in between. You all make me laugh and brighten my day. I feel at home with my fellow Marvel fans. On the question of the week, what is my favorite episode of Marvel Studios What If thus far? It has to be Marvel Zombies. I've been waiting to see that episode since the first tease of the show when we got a glimpse of Zombie Cap. The backdrop being not only Infinity War, but adding in a twist to Ant-Man and the Wasp to link the story together was fabulous. The zombie versions of Iron Man Cap, Doctor Strange, Wong, and Sam, and Wanda? I'd be scared out of my wits going up against zombie versions of Super powered beings. What really was a highlight for me was when Peter mentioned not only his Uncle Ben, but his mom and dad. Peter's parents haven't been touched on too much in the films. It was actually something I was happy that was included in the Amazing Spider-Man films with Andrew Garfield. So it was nice to get that acknowledgement of his parents in the MCU. From the head of Scott Lang to T'Challa reminding us that even though our friends and loved ones may be gone, they are still us. Not going to lie, I got a little teary-eyed when he said that. All in all, it was an exciting and fun episode, and I can't wait to get more zombie Hunter Spidey. (laughs) That cape looks too good on him. Maybe one day we can get that mutated version of Spider-Man that was scrapped. It was awesome in the 90s animated series. I remember in the series that Morbius was involved in those particular series of episodes. It would be cool if that was a crazy way to connect Morbius and Spidey in the films. Wishful thinking, right? By the way, how excited are you for all Venom and Carnage? Again, the 90s cartoon introduced me to these characters, so it will be exciting to see them on the big screen. Thank you for being amazing. Thanks, Dustin. Yeah, Matt, thank you very much. It's fun to think that, you know, you've been doing the show with us for a while. James. And so now people are because of your trips around the world and all your secret stuff. Now people are getting introduced to you here on the show for the first time. So hooray. Listen, this this family is awesome. And my friends aren't vile. We're just children that are grown ups. (laughs) (laughs) Lorraine is vile. I'm (laughs) you right. Hey, you're right. You know, (laughs) you're not wrong. You know, that's okay. And on that note, this episode of This Week in Marvel is produced by Alexis Williams, Zachary Goldberg, Isabel Robertson, Lorraine Sink, and Ryan Panagos. Our audio development manager is Brad Barton. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And special thanks to Symbiote Dentistry. Symbiote Dentistry, are you a bucket of teeth and a bag of goo? If you are, come on down to Symbiote Dentistry and get your teeth cleaned or whatever today. Don't murder. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Ryan. I'm Lorraine. And I am JMI. And this is Marvel. Your Your universe. universe.